Hey, you're listening to the Brutally Delicious Podcast. I'm Bruce Moore. And I'm Chris. I want to thank you for stepping in here and joining us. Today's guest is Mark Dutrom. Um, some of you may know him from the Melvins, from the uh, Doom Band Sun, or from many of the other projects that uh, he's been working on. So we're going to chat with him and see what he's working on these days. So what have you been listening to otherwise this week? Anything good? That freaking new amount of Marth is unfreaking believable. It's really good. It took me a few listens to get into it at first because I'm so used to their it. Like it sounds like a monomarth, but to me it feels like a big departure. I think so you too. It, and uh, it took me a few listens, but I really dig it. I'm I mean, to- that guy, that guy can growl. He can totally growl. I mean, they're very serious about it. But I think it's. I mean, it's different, but I don't think it's massively different. I mean, you could still tell it's a monomarth. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It just kind of took me, like, it was just a bit darker, like, not emotionally, but sonically, it was a bit darker, a bit a bit thinner at the same time, and I was like, this is very, very different. I mean, it, it was killer, but it was just kind of a little bit, um, it took me out of, out of left field, I guess. I'll tell you something, I just saw him on some interview, or listened to him on some interview on Sirius XM or something, and I thought it was funny that they're the original, like, Viking metal, and, you know, they grew up and live in that place, but he says he's writing lyrics based on the Viking TV show. Isn't that kind of... <laughs> Isn't that kind of bizarre? <laughs> I mean, the dude lives it. I don't know why he's why he would be doing that. Oh, that's great. Have you ever seen footage of them at Vakken when they have like the big Viking boat on oh, the yeah. stage? Actually, I saw and them got, here. You saw they, them there? Yeah, they played. No, I saw them here. I wish I could go to Vakken. That's on my bucket list. But no, I saw them here. They played, I don't know, a year or two ago with uh, another band called Goat Whore. But yeah, they, uh, they brought the whole stage with them, the whole boat. It was pretty crazy. Oh, wow. Where did they play? The same place I'm going to see Whitesnake. Uh, it's called The National. Oh, cool. It's probably like a 1,500-1,800 seat place. I don't know. Not massive. Yeah, that's cool. That's better anyways. I, I prefer smaller venues. Yeah, I mean, it, I love it. It's great. Well, the Death Angel song has been on repeat. So I was hanging out with um, with my buddy on the pool deck, and we were pretty drunk at this point. Like It was probably like 3 in the afternoon. We've been drinking all day. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, <laughs> typical Chris Cruz lifestyle. And um, Mark comes walking by, and he's like, dude! And I was just like, hey, man. He's like, I remember you. You were here in 2011. We partied so hard. I was just like, I can't believe you remember that. Right, all the people you know? he sees traveling the world, he remembers your dumbass. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, how do, you, how do you remember that? You know, it's crazy. And then he's like, let's get a selfie. So he took a selfie, and and then he just went on his merry way. Yeah, I know. That's the one I've been using all the time on, on your profile pic. So he is a very nice guy. I definitely think if they were, you know, they don't get the respect they need. They need. They should be, in at least my opinion, the top, the big six. They could even make the big four. I mean, I know the big four is Slayer, Overkill. I'm not Slayer. It's Slayer, Metallica, Anthrax Megadeth. and Megadeth, but my big four would be probably just a, well, a lot different. I, I, I don't know. I don't know about you, but I would definitely have, of course, Slayer. Um, you and I saw them back yeah. a few months ago. There's no denying they should be up there. And Metallica, I guess the jury's out after, you know, the Black Album. I don't know where I stand on them, but um, I know you're you have to You have to give them credit where credit's due, really. I mean, they did bring it to the mainstream in a way that other bands didn't. 
Right. Even if they even if they did kind of veer off for a few years before they came back, you know. But yeah, I agree with you in, in a way. But yeah, I think. And I'm, we saw Anthrax on the boat too. We're gonna keep tying everything back to the boat for a while, I guess. But shit, I remember the last night on the boat. Oh, fucking Anthrax! I don't know how you take the big four away from them. But in my, in my less than humble opinion, I guess. I mean, I think Overkill deserves a spot up there. I'm such a big Overkill fan, and Death Angel, like we just spoke. I wonder what stopped Death Angel from getting that notoriety. Do you think it was like the the quality of their early recordings that kind of stopped them from getting it? Because their early recordings. The songs are good, but it sounds like somebody was producing a hair metal band right. and doing thrash metal. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if that could be it or not, because the, the energy was there from the beginning. I mean, I've always liked them. Yeah, I've always considered them right in the same kind of vein as Exodus or any of those Bay Area bands, for sure. But for yeah. some reason, they ne- even Testament. But for some reason, they never got the, like you said, the, the props that I think they really deserved. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I didn't hear, I didn't even know who they were until, like, 2011 and i saw them live and they just pulled the crowd like from like the crowd kind of was disinterested at first and then by the end of the show it was like a raging pit you know they, they had like the the wall of death going and i was just like who are these guys yeah. and i was so blown away by their live show and i got home from the show and I instantly went to YouTube. I was like, oh, I got to find some of their material. And I listened to their older material. And I was like, well, the songs are good. I heard this one live, but this is terrible. This recording just doesn't live up to the right to what I heard. And I didn't know. Uh, maybe maybe that has something to do with it. I don't know. I guess the old Metallica record sounded terrible, too. Kill them all sounded bad the first time you heard it. Oh, yeah. All those old thrash, all those old thrash records sounded like somebody was recording a hairband. Right. Well, I mean, I and, guess that's that's because that's what was happening, right? That was in direct, <laughs> <laughs> that was in direct yeah. response to the hair metal stuff coming out of Frisco, and then I think we got Mark. You still there? I am still here. Forgive the uh, my my wife is rather draconian with the stickers on the cameras, so oh, I'm traveling. I'm traveling with her laptop, so I dare not remove it. Hello, Chris. How are you? Great. Nice to meet you. Yeah, you too. Where are you at today? You out in uh, the West Coast? I'm I'm in Los Angeles, as they used to pronounce it. And you're uh, you're on the road right now, right? I am. Yes. How's the uh, tour going? Uh, well, it's been interesting. You know, we I think we've kind of run through the gamut of every Spinal Tap quote um, at this point. We we were supposed to play a week in Canada, and we were refused admission by the immigration services due to some kind of issue. And uh, so we had to just take a week's vacation for the second week of our tour, which was kind of weird to do because we were just getting fired up. Um, so we drove, we tried to cross the border in uh, North Dakota, which is the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and so when we were refused, we had to go back to Fargo and then we had to drive all the way across um, you know, North Dakota and then all the way across Montana and so we just ate a couple of steak dinners and relaxed and you know, <laughs> tried not to care too much about it. But obviously the loss of revenue uh, was unfortunate. And also um, uh, the people that wanted to see us in Canada didn't get to see us. So that's unfortunate also. Do you feel like that takes away from the momentum that you had built up or and you have to start all over again? or? Well, I mean, you know, there's a certain amount of the momentum just kind of continues regardless 
So the, the shows weren't that huge or demanding. So, um, yeah, I mean, obviously, if you're touring for four weeks, you don't want to have your second week be a week off. Right. You know, and then there's been bumps in, you know, just in a variety of standard things that go on all the time. But overall, it's cool. You know, it's great to be out here playing. It's too bad that you didn't get get into Canada. I'm originally from Canada. Oh. And I saw I saw that I've, I've been through that border crossing you speak of, and it's in the middle of nowhere. It really <laughs> Literally. is. It's a town, the the Canadian town is called Emerson, and I don't know anything about it. But you also kind of enter a enter a signal void because all around it, uh, for seventy five miles, I mean, there's no signals, so you can't even make phone calls to pursue any course of action that you might want to by talking to a you know immigration specialist or anything like that and uh, i think the most most disappointing part is of course i mean if you're going to go do this for real you have to have all of your documents in order long before you go up there you know with all of your show information and everything so they know quite a bit in advance what they're looking at when you come to the border so um, it somehow seems a little bit, uh, I'm not sure exactly what the term would be, but, um, you know, to make you drive to the border and then refuse you after they have all your documentation seems a little petulant to me. Yeah. It was, that, that seems a bit strange. I wonder if it was just because of the border crossing you chose that they don't really deal with that, that much there. Um, I don't really know, but, uh, you know, it appears to be arbitrary, um, because I mean, I, 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 I had been back to Canada since the, the incidents I was involved with, and been granted admission and and played in Canada with Sun in uh, 2006, and so, you know, the the immigration officer is sitting there looking at, at my documentation because they know everything you've done, and he goes, oh, I see you vid- visited Canada in 2006 for work with no incident. And I go, yes. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know, I mean, we might as well be counting the stripes on the zebras, you know, going by or something. I mean, it just was okay. You know? He's kind of like, well, good for you, you know, not causing any trouble. <laughs> you know, it's going, well, do you have a little golden maple leaf pin for me or something, at least on my way back? And then, of course, when we went back to the U.S., we got shook down at customs coming in. They wanted to look in the van and all that stuff, and they were going, how long have you been out of the country for? And we go, well, uh, two hours. And where did you go? Well, you see that building right over there? That's where we went. You just have to laugh at the, you know, just the, the procedure and, you know, the whole, you have to laugh. You either laugh or you cry. You know? Yeah, it, it all seems so archaic in a way you know if you're a touring musician and you have your paperwork they should just let you go play yeah i mean certainly you know i understand that there's i mean people have suggested that maybe there's a little uh tit for tat uh you know reindeer game going on at the borders you know between canada and the u.s just because of the the change in ice policy on the u.s side so you know i but i've heard of a lot of people having having issues uh going there now you know everybody goes yeah of course i mean just they're just that's what their policy is just a reaction to the u.s policy is all that's going on you know because they're kind of going we can do that too just do it you know so yeah i suppose it's true 
to the new single that they sent over in the email. Man, I got to tell you, that sounds like a modern Pink Floyd that just went two steps further. I just want to say that that I was just blown away by it. Just unbelievable. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Um, Could you tell me which song it was? (laughs) Yeah, Hell is a City. Looking at it right now. Okay, of course. Yes, that's the, the most recent one. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think that that song came out pretty much exactly the way that uh, it floated around in my head for a while, you know? So, um, yeah, thank you. That's yeah, a, no, that's it was the first time I'd heard I'd heard of, of that, and, like, Bruce sent me the email over. And, like, just so you're aware, part of the reason I'm I'm doing this podcast with Bruce is because... I'm kind of new to all this alternative kind of outside the mainstream music, and I'm really addicted to it. So it gives me an opportunity to learn more about it and and to really expand my my horizons, I guess you could say. So well, there's a lot out there. I mean, there's almost there's almost too much stuff out there. You know? <laughs> yeah. So but it's it's tastemakers like yourselves, you know, doing this kind of thing that actually raises the profile and makes people realize you know what there is this whole universe that exists outside of television and the mainstream and uh you know it's just kind of a mist that you have to find your way through because there's so much of it you know oh i know like as soon as you start at i mean sometimes i start at like 10 a.m when i get up and i'm a recording engineer so i have mixing to do and software to create and all kinds of stuff next thing i know it's three in the afternoon i haven't got off Bandcamp or whatever. <laughs> yeah, don't go in there. You'll never find your way out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. So what, what tracks are you listening to right now? Like, what's, what's driving you guys on the road musically? Oh, gosh. Um, well, um, Brian brought a, Brian's got a phone, and that phone streams, and so basically we have all the music recorded available to us. Um, <laughs> He put on, on his phone, he put, I think, the first seven ZZ Top albums or six ZZ Top albums, and um, there's a great uh, Stax Vault singles collection, oh, which yeah. is a giant, really cool box set. I think there's six or seven CDs in it, but it's all the singles that Stax Vault put out. So you've got you know Albert King and, and the Staples singers and all that kind of stuff in there. And uh, so we've sort of been going back and forth between that, and I've been listening to Tempest by Bob Dylan, which I think is just a great late masterpiece from him. And I've been listening to just the usual stuff, Chopin and Mahler and, you know, 70s Miles Davis live stuff. And we go all over the place, you know, George Jones, and we're listening to some... uh, World Pacific Ravi Shankar recordings yesterday. Oh you know, man, that's, it's it's pretty much whatever. It's like throwing spaghetti at the wall and whatever whatever plays is what happens. Yeah, and uh, you know, I mean, I've got everything from Barry White to Penderecki on my iPod, so I listen to all of it. You know. Yeah, yeah. That's all um, very. That's all very different from stuff that you've done, like the sun the sun work, and uh, we Chris and I were talking about the Melvins as well, right? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I, you know, my background is really composition. I mean, I went to Cal Arts and studied composition there, and there were all these 
uh, heavyweights blowing through. It was really like a golden, the, the end of the golden age of kind of contemporary 20th century composition. So, uh, you know, I got to go to seminars with John Cage and uh, Morton Feldman and Jacob Druckmann and Lou Harrison and, um, you know, Aaron Copeland showed up one day and Benny Goodman. I mean, the people that were just coming through there were pretty, they were staggering, you know, the kind of stuff that they'd done. You know, how, the how did, music history parading through, you know, so. How did, how did you go from composition uh, to, to kind of like the Melvins and the more kind of alternative side? How did, you, how did, how did that happen? Well, I mean, I always liked rock, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm like, a, you know, 10 million teenagers who heard Jimi Hendrix, you know, wanted to make that sound. So, um, you know, I mean, even from really, really a very young age in the UK, when I was five, I was born in the UK and spent the first six, six or seven years of my life there. I mean, I remember um, watching the Beatles on television and just being astounded by it and thinking it was just the coolest thing, you know. But I didn't, oh, start, yeah. didn't start playing until way later, not even way later, but, you know, when I was 10 or something like that. Right. And um, so I'd always kind of heard classical music throughout my life also. So, I'd, so the two things are, um, you know, very attractive and interesting to me. And um, um, so that's... The, the combination of those things uh, drives my love of music. And once, once, once I discovered prog rock, you know, I, I went, wow, there's this great intersection where people like Yes and Emerson, like and Palmer, are drawing on these different sources and playing around with them. And, um, yeah, just the colors of, of serious classical music are, are amazing. The, you know, orchestral colors are fabulous. Oh, I absolutely agree. George Martin really changed my view of of that side of things too. When he started bringing in a lot more of the of the orchestral side of stuff into the Beatles, it was it was kind of, I mean, it was a lot of strings, but it was really it blew my mind away, to be honest. And I like I was young. I heard it when I was young, but um, and they were well ahead of my time. But it was still, you know, I grew up in hair metal, so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, like, sorry. Sorry. Somebody showed somebody showed me the Beatles, and I was like, "Why are there strings in this in this song? What's happening?" You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think they're they're a good example of a multi-genre band, if there ever was one. I mean, they just let their imagination run, and they had the success and the the perfect timing, um, you know, culturally to be able to have that happen. I mean, it's crazy to think, but one year earlier or one year later. Uh, in the t in the timing of the overall scheme of the Beatles' popularity, and there probably wouldn't even be the Beatles as we know it now, you know. So timing is a huge thing that a lot of people don't actually think about, you know. And uh, it's interesting to look at historically, certainly. Yeah. Now, one other thing I noticed in in through your Wikipedia and in the bio that was sent over. Um, you started a label in San Francisco in 85, is that correct? Uh, yeah, roundabout there, yeah. Yeah, now, in that time, in San Francisco, there's a lot of thrash metal going on. How did that affect what you were doing musically or even how your label approached what you were doing? Uh, well, I mean, it was just fun, 
you know, our whole thing was we just want to do, we just want to work with people who are, who are fun. We want to make good records with them. And there was a lot of cross pollinization in the Bay Area at the time. And it was super cool. You'd have metal guys going to DIY punk rock shows. You'd have, uh, punk rock guys going to Ruthie's to hear the metal bands. Everybody would go see the big metal bands and everybody would go see the big kind of alt bands that were going on at the time. So there was this pretty large group of people that all knew each other. Um, and really what they had in common was they played loud music. Some of it was faster, some of it was tighter, but it was yeah. all loud, you right. know? So, <laughs> so it was a cool kind of little, um, you know, beehive with all these people doing different things. And I mean, you had at the time, Joe Satriani was actually a guitar teacher. And so he was teaching everybody. He's taught Steve Vai and he taught uh, uh, Alchemy had a had a band on its label called Sacrilege. And one of the yeah. guitar players taught from Joe Satriani and he was took took lessons from Joe and he said, oh man, you got to go over there and take lessons from Joe. Joe's awesome. And um, I knew that, but I could just never get my schedule right, you know, between work to be able to get over there to do it, which I kind of regret. But uh, so there was that level of cool stuff going on at the time. And um, I think Alchemy kind of reflected that there's sacrileges on there's pretty thrashy and neurosis is their genesis and they're very noisy and extreme. And um, there's RKL, who is uh, a very legendary um, Santa Barbara band, um, highly, highly influential to the whole no, no FX thing. Basically, came. Oh, out really? And, um, so it was a cool little thing that went on for a couple of years. Alchemy, you know, that was fun to do it and try it, and you know, and the Melvins. The Melvins were on there too. Yeah. <laughs> <So>. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. And then with the Melvins, I mean, you went out on the road, I was reading as well, with a bunch of, like, huge, like, arena bands, right? Like Tool and Nirvana and Kiss and... Yeah, that's right. That's one of the the uh, benefits of being on a gigantic label like Atlantic and, you know, them wanting to back you up on trying to do stuff like that. And right. once again, it is a timing thing. There has to be... The spot has to be a bit... There's, there's about 25 boxes that need to be ticked to be able to jump on something like that. And so, you know, chances are we might have even been third or fourth down the list from a lot of bands, maybe 10th. You know, yep. everybody's like, oh, we're not doing that, you know, or for whatever reason. Right. So we just got lucky. And uh, that, was a, that was a fun little thing to try and do also, you know. Oh, I bet that was a blast. <laughs> That's highly surreal, I'll tell you that, when you find yourself in those situations going, oh, I'm playing with Rush, you know, at the Cow Palace. Unbelievable. Very, <laughs> very, very odd sensation. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> so, so I have a question for you then. So you go from playing massive arenas with Tool and Nirvana and what we were talking about, Rush, to playing clubs that, like a club tour that you're on now. Do you have to prepare differently, or how do you feel about it? Is the show a show, or is it is it somehow different? Well, it's kind of a show is a show, and it's just down to the logistics of how it's being run and the people that you're working with. You know, that's that's really all it is. It's the same thing on different on a different kind of scaling. Um, and I mean, I've always I've played more small shows than I have anything else, and that includes with the Melvins. 
you know, with the Melvins, we never uh, we never went out for you know three months with some gigantic band, and typically they rarely do that. You know, they'll pick up people for segments, and so that's what happened to us. And so we were we were able to fold in, you know, two weeks with some some kind of legacy band uh, into just a regular U.S. tour or whatever. So we'd be, you know, because typically those big tours are not playing every single night. You know, they kind of have have a couple of rigs out and they leapfrog them. You right. know, yeah. they might do that. But uh, so we'd, we'd play in front of, you know, a big crowd in a big place. And the next night we might be playing to 200 people someplace. So there's not really a lot of preparation that you have to do. I mean, playing is playing. It's more... You know, the stage is bigger or it's smaller or it sounds good or it doesn't sound so good, you know. Nice. Uh, <clears throat> now, since you owned a label before, how, how, do you, how do you see the way technology has changed the way people are, are making music nowadays? Um, well, I mean, I don't... I mean, the, the editing thing has gotten ridiculous you know the editing and processing thing has gotten to the point where you can just make virtually anything sound good i mean you can't there's still not an app for writing songs i mean they're working on some some uh, you know or some ai stuff for songwriting which is sort of interesting but um yeah i mean you can't really tell what anybody sounds like anymore i mean recording is sort of a specific kind of thing um for me I tend to do things a certain way. I'm interested in capturing performances yeah. and uh, getting a song to a space where it's ready to be recorded as opposed to throwing a million things into a box and, and trying to draw, extract an arrangement out of that, you know? Um, yeah. And so I just hear stuff in my head and um, I love arranging and I love trying to make a three-piece sound bigger than it does. Nice. And when I'm recording, I believe in capturing performances. And I mean, typically, all of the stuff I record for me and for bands that I produce, I try that. I try to emphasize that you know we're documenting moments here. We're if we want to do something else, just create stuff out of out of thin air. You can sit down and do that on a computer. But really, um, all the great performances of music history are just that. They're great captured performances, you know. And I obviously, totally agree. Obviously, there's things like Pink Floyd and and uh, other things that are, I mean, you can be as complicated as you like or whatever. But, <laughs> you know, for me, there's still nothing better than hearing a super great performance played by a bunch of people playing together. So... The majority of stuff that I do, I have to overdub a lot of guitars for obvious reasons, you know, but um, everything's pretty much just everybody playing all the way through. And it, it, you know, helps the music breathe in a certain way that just massive editing doesn't, you know. I think it's way more organic for sure. It, it really is. I mean, I, 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 my background in recording, I started working at a blues studio in Vancouver called Blue Wave Studios. Yeah, and, and it was a medium-sized diffusion room, and we would bring in live blues bands, and they would just jam, right? And, and we get a record at the end of the day. You know, we sometimes yeah. we cut ten songs a day. Sure, it was well, amazing. Yeah, I mean that's cool, and that, that's the way a lot of really 
great music was made. I mean, you know, people like Art Tatum, they'd go in the studio and they cut 15 sides in an afternoon. I mean, it's insane, you know, or like the old Louis Armstrong stuff or, uh, you know, even guys like Cream and uh, Mountain, they were going in and cutting records in a few days, you know, Grand Funk Railroad. Yeah. And uh, you can hear people like that playing together and it sounds really good. I mean, I still record to tape and I still try to keep everything... Um, I try to get my players to commit to performances, you know. Yeah, yeah. Where are you getting tape these days? <laughs> uh, there's a company called ATR that makes it in Pennsylvania, and I think there's oh, a cool. European company. But, I mean, it's it's like the, um, whatever it was, the the old Ampex spec, you know. There was, the Ampe- was Quantigy, yeah, Quantigy 499 spec, and I think they do another one, too. But they make all that stuff, so... Yeah, oh, I still amazing. go there, and I think it, you know, I think it does something to the, to the recordings. You know, I mean, they're real; they're not. I, I still have a problem with thinking that digital recording is is actually even real. You know, so I just whenever <laughs> instead of, instead instead of rolling, I go converting, you know, <laughs> just converting sound to data. You're not actually recording it. You know, right. so I don't know. It's just a silly. I'm just old, you know, that's all. Nah, I'm in the same oh, no, boat as you. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, that's all I've got. Chris, are you good? I'm good. Thanks Thanks so much for joining us. All Mark, right, yeah. Pleasure. I appreciate, t- appreciate you taking the time. Good luck with the rest of the tour and be safe, okay? Overall, he was a nice guy though, right? Oh, so nice. Very relaxed. He was just wanting to chat. So we've got two of them in the books that I think are pretty good, uh, or pretty good interviews anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's nice to talk to someone and just have a conversation with them instead of asking them about their favorite, their how how did what about their new song or how did you come up with the band name or that that didn't come up once in that conversation. No, we're just having a conversation with people, and I think that's what's going to make this podcast different than other podcasts. Is that you know we're just having conversations with artists. We're not we're not interviewing them. We're having conversations. If you're listening to this, I encourage you to go out and check out his his stuff. Oh yeah, that that new that new single is great. Very different from what I was expecting when it got sent over, especially since they're on uh, season of seasons of mist label, which is known for like all that black metal, dark kind of stuff. I wasn't expecting that. Not that it's bad. We talked about it earlier before we got on that. You know, it's very very different, but very cool at the same time. Absolutely. Cool, man. Um, got anything else? I got nothing else. Thank you for listening. Chris, thanks for joining thanks us for, again. Hope you're hey, uh, all the time. <laughs> hope you're uh, <laughs> hope you're gathering some knowledge here and jotting down notes and checking out these bands that people keep. I know I heard a whole bunch of stuff that I never heard of before from Mark, so I'm going to try and check out some of the stuff he was talking about. I have a text pad open at all times, and I'm just like, tick, 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 tick. <laughs> I think you probably hear me typing in the background. <laughs> I'm not very, I'm not very well versed in the uh, the whole classic rock or the older school thing. I've kind of always been, well, I mean, obviously the Beatles and Bob Dylan, but some of the stuff he was talking about, I have no idea. So I'll go back and do my own research. So in the end, I'm learning from this as well, which is, I guess, kind of cool. Yeah, it's very awesome. So cool, man. I want to thank all of you for listening. Uh, go ahead and check out Mark's stuff if you can, and have a great week. Cheers. Cheers. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of That One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. 
Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com.